1968, Philip K. Dick created a dystopian world of androids, empathy tests, and automated animals in his novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yes, this is the basis for the movie Blade Runner, but the two have only passing similarities. The novel delves much deeper into the dark and dying world inhabited by Rick Deckard. It explores the effects of technology like a machine that dials up emotional states, and asks deep questions about the nature of humanity and whether empathy is a necessary facet of that nature. It's great fodder for conversation. So guest host Jay Schweig and I got some simulated beer and scrounged up a bottle of Chablis we've been saving since World War Terminus to talk about those questions. It's time for episode 13 of Toasting the Classics, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? We're recording, is that right? We're live? Yeah, we should be should be recording here. Okay, so welcome to Toasting the Classics. Uh, it's the podcast where we... Uh, read a book watch a movie or whatever and then we present whatever the classic is that we read or watched and we drink a drink that's related to it it's a little bit different today first of all we're on zoom which has happened before but second of all uh we've got a guest guest host today hi there who are you where do you come from uh my name is jay are you sure you're not a replicant I, I'm I'm like eighty percent sure I'm not. Okay. Uh, maybe eighty-five. Uh, okay. And uh, I come from actually I guess the state I'm in does border Dave's state, so I'm in I'm in Oklahoma. Yeah, I, I always think I always tell people I'm like I'm only one state away from you. Unfortunately, that state is Texas. I remember yeah, like calling, yeah. I, I called Karina from Louisiana when I was driving home, and I, that's what I said. I was like, I'm only one state away, you know. Unfortunately, it's the yeah, 900 that is mile a rough, drive. That is a rough state, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I've, and I, I should say for the audience, I've known Dave forever. I've probably known you since. I don't know if you want to say it kind of dates us, right? So, yeah, uh, you know, we've done a lot specifically. Of that. With, okay, first of all, so, half of the half of the things we talk about on the show took place in the 70s, so that's a dead giveaway. Okay. And when they yeah. and when they don't, we're like, oh, we were teenagers, and it was 1992. So it's, you know, yeah, there's no yeah. there's no mysteries here. So I've probably um, known you since um, maybe 1998, 99. I had a so, big and, breakup. I had a big breakup in 97. I started having to make friends at college. I was just hanging oh, out with my girlfriend for the first couple of years. So was, yeah, um, yeah. I knew Alan. I knew Alan Richards. That was the only person I knew at college, basically, because <laughs> I was not hanging out with anybody. So, so what did you? Uh, so you got to choose for today. Uh, yeah. What we're gonna do? Uh, went with book because we're not on the rotation. Normally, the rotation is book, movie, free choice. But you're a guest; you get to choose whatever. So, what'd you go with? Oh, awesome. So I went with uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Um, so okay. this is a book from. I think it's from 1968 about. Uh, I think that's right. And, yeah. um, and obviously it's, it's kind of most famous as being the basis for Blade Runner, which is kind of weird because Blade Runner is, you know, there are some deeper themes to it, but it's, it's you know, mostly kind of a sci-fi-ish action movie. And do androids dream of electric sheep? I mean, it's not very surprising. There's androids in the title, obviously, is a sci-fi right. book. Well, one of, the major things, say, one of the major themes of the book is the the whole um, the Android question, right? Like the yeah. like the consciousness of Androids. That's pretty present in the film. I mean, I think that's kind of it's not yeah, as well I, it's not as well dealt with, obviously, in the film. Yeah. Uh, but it's there. You know, if you watch the movie a bunch of times, you're going to be thinking about it. And this so, and, and and I should mention that this movie kind of began 
for better or for worse, a trend of making uh, movies out of uh, the works of Philip K. Dick, right? Because Total Recall is Total Recall, Philip, yeah. Philip K. Dick, and then some worse ones like Paycheck with Ben Affleck, and I think one with Nicholas Cage. Are you, sorry, are you, are you kidding? Is that is the, is the movie kidding. Paycheck based? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, there's the TV yeah. show Man in the High Castle, which I've never seen. Yeah, and that's and that I think is 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 uh, supposed to be pretty good. I think I watched part of the first season. That. Well, that book is actually more acclaimed than this one. Um, yeah, weirdly yeah. enough, it, I think it was either a Hugo or a Nebula that it won. This one didn't win any awards, as far as I knew. Yeah, but I never read that and never saw it, so I don't. Yeah, so one of one of the reasons that I thought this would be a good book to talk about is I think some of the themes are actually very applicable to uh, stuff that everyone's experiencing today. Um, and I guess we can get to that in a little bit. Uh, isolation. Well, like, isolation, what are you, what are you but, thinking? Well, actually, I think a lot of what technology has kind of given us is this idea that like, Hey, there's something just as good as a normal experience, namely like oh, what we're yeah, on right, right now. Right, we're right, on right, zoom right, right yes, now. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm sure everyone's right. experienced this where, you know, you have a zoom get together with like 10 people, but it doesn't feel like you just hung out with those 10 people, right? No. There's, there's something very different in a simulation, in a technologically kind of aided yeah. simulation um, than yeah, so, a more so organic interaction. Here's something I always wonder. I always come away from those. Like, it's, it's better talking to people over Zoom than not talking to anybody, right? Like, we've had a couple yeah. of gatherings with old friends and things like that. But I always come away from it, like, a little bit cold. It doesn't give me, like, if I hung yeah. out with my friends, I'd have kind of a, like, a buzz from it. You know, like, I'd get kind of a charge from seeing everybody. And I'm wondering whether that applies to people that are not extroverts. Because I think I draw energy from hanging out with people. Like that's my personality type. Yeah. I think some people I mean, I'm, they I'm feel drained weird. by that. I'm kind of weird. And I think I think I'm kind of the same way, but it needs to be the right people, right? Um, you know. Right. So well, yeah. It's it's well, yeah. I mean, like uh, going, going <laughs> like going to like a funeral with a bunch of like distant relations that like you know are Amish or something. That's not that I don't yeah. get a lot of energy out of that. But yes, the right. Oh people, no, I yeah. I draw tons of energy from distant relative <laughs> Amish funerals. That's the that's the best. Uh, yeah, those are no, good. But there those is you know, and again, it's you know, it's nice seeing people over Zoom. Yeah, like you said, it is very different to have something and. And I think, you know, and, and also in the university setting, um, you know, I've, I teach at a university. And so there's kind of been this idea. like A university COVID, which shall like, remain hey, unnamed? Or? Oh, I shall the university it, remain so. unnamed? Oh, okay. I didn't no, know. No, if, I don't know if you get Oklahoma in trouble. State. Uh, no, no. I don't okay. think I should get in trouble for it. And I've also, yeah, I've said my name. So obviously. And definitely everything yeah. Jay says tonight um, is the, are the sole views of the, of Oklahoma state university, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. We're attributing all of the things you say, but yeah, good. No, 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 nothing, nothing is the view of Oklahoma state university. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Mike, I knew there was some be. kind of a disclaimer. It's uh, it's been be. a while for me. Um, but, you know, obviously there's, you know, with COVID and precautions of going online, there's kind of been mm -hmm. this idea like, and I think going into it and not just my university, but all universities, going into it, we're like, hey, we can teach classes online over Zoom and it's kind of the same thing. And right. something we found out in the past year, it's not the same at all. It's re, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing how markedly different it is. Um, right. And one of the reasons is, you know, when you're taught, when you're like at a class 
on Zoom, it's not an immersive experience. You can have like, you know, your professor, uh, you know, open in some window and then you're browsing the internet in another window or something like that. And you kind of have sure. this idea like, I'm taking part in this thing, but it's not the immersive social experience that being in a class actually right. is. And I, so I, remember, I think that's very similar to the to what you were saying with hanging out with people. It's not the same immersive thing. You know, if we're on Zoom with four friends, right. it's definitely not the same as, you know, actually hanging out with those four friends. Yeah. When I, when I went to law school, I got there my first semester and I was one of the only people that didn't bring a laptop to, to class every day. And most people were like yeah. sitting on their laptops, like clicking away. And I finally broke. I, I was using a notebook for like the first semester. And I finally broke down and started bringing a laptop and my engagement with the class dropped off like by half. Yeah. I was distracted yeah, by having a computer. I wasn't looking at the professor. I was typing. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, Zoom has got to be even worse because, I mean, you're sitting at home in your underwear taking a class. I don't know. Are there rules? Are you not, are, do you have to have pants on while you're taking a class? I mean, I don't really know. Like, <laughs> that, would, that would be a weird thing I mean, to put be, on the syllabus. Like, uh, well, I've um, heard kids, little kids, elementary school kids get in trouble for all kinds of stuff. There was a kid that had a Nerf gun behind him and they, he got in trouble for like oh, wow. having a, for like the rules for having a gun at school. And it was just like, That's you know, crazy. That's yeah, it's pretty, pretty ridiculous. So well, I, did, I actually didn't require that students have their camera on or anything okay. because that felt intrusive, you know, as sure, you know, it, it's, it would be weird if like during a normal semester, I like went over to like their house and I was like, so what's going on in your living room here? Right. And it's, right. it feels, intr it feels intrusive when, um, you know, you're on a zoom call with someone you don't know very well. And you're like looking at their house. Right. So I didn't, I didn't. Yeah. Want and students and unnecessary. Their camera on. Right. And unnecessary. Like, what are you gaining? I guess you'd be gaining the human connection from your students by seeing them, but not, not nothing that would actually help you do your job. I wouldn't think so. Yeah. I mean, I think the only reason that, that I don't know if some people did require it, but I think the only reason to require it would be to make sure that the students are actually paying attention. Right. Because otherwise the student could have the zoom thing on. And, and we saw this with other schooling too, right? Like, students would just keep zoom on and then go do other things because yeah, it just says they're checked in on the call. Right. Right. Which is obviously right. very, very different than being in a, in a class. Um, yeah. I was so glad my kids went back to school early on. I mean, it was a couple yeah. of months and then they, they went back to school. So it wasn't too bad. So I guess all this is by way of asking the question, whether like a relationship with an Android could be the same in a sense, like, yeah. I, and I think it's, it's kind of like a Turing test question. And it's reminding me of, you know, Robert Nozick, the philosopher, he had like the pleasure box uh, idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. If you could be in a pleasure box and just press all those buttons, would it? And if for some, you're supposed to answer and everybody does answer that. No, it wouldn't be the same thing. So it's kind of yeah. like that. It's like for some reason, it not being real matters. Yeah. You know, even more so than Zoom, because I mean, Zoom is real. It's a real person. It's, I think I think the thing that that can be you know, that that's kind of similar throughout it is, is this kind of hubris that technology has that, you know, we can do this thing exact substituting for, you know, something that's more organic, right? right. Like, you know, you want to hang out with someone, it's exactly the same as seeing them on a screen. And I, I think we can all agree, it's, it's really not. And there's a, it, we're only starting to finally understand kind of how it's different. I'm not even 100% sure I know. And most of it's the immersion, I guess, just the sensory immersion with talking yeah. to somebody and maybe being able to like improvise and be like, hey, let's go somewhere else or something like that. Like yeah. it's just more free. 
I don't know. I, it definitely I mean, I think different, there's certain, inta- I think there's certain intangibles just from being in person with someone. Right. Um, I mm-hmm. think one thing, you know, in terms of classes, I think one thing that's very different for uh, in-person classes versus online is the thing that really makes students do well in an in-person class is the social pressure, right? You see everyone else doing well and paying attention and you're like, oh, I should pay attention too. Yeah. But you know, if you're yeah. just online, you're, it's, it's just all theoretical. You're like, well, maybe there are other people watching. Maybe it's just me watching. Maybe I can just kind of tune it out. Also, doesn't everybody just kind of feel like everyone's winging it? You know, everyone's flying by the seat of their pants because it's COVID and it doesn't really count. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think also you know, a lot of it is the the moment, the moment yeah. in history, the kind yeah. of unfortunate moment in history we're occupying right now. Do you have trouble separating? So clearly this book, the movie weighs really heavily, right? Do you have like so actually, I almost was I almost I was almost having trouble as I was reading. I was kind of like jotting down some thoughts about the book and I was trying not to have them all be contrasts with the movie. Most of my yeah. thoughts were like, oh, that wasn't in the movie. Oh, that wasn't in the movie. You know, and I was like, yeah. I realized after a while, I was like, this is getting old. It's really not that much like the movie. So. So I think uh, for me, because I read this, I reread this book recently and mm. I had read it before, I think one or two times. So it's, it's fairly familiar to me. Okay. And so I kind of, I kind of actually think of this book before I think of the movie. Um, oh, okay. Okay. In a way. So like, you know, when I'm picturing things, I'm not picturing Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard or um, what's her name? I, Sean Young as Rachel Rosen or something. Like see that. that one. I couldn't, I couldn't stop picturing Sean Young as Rachel Rosen, but I did drop the Harrison Ford wasn't in there. And I could see the architecture of all the rooms and buildings as being completely different because immediately it was yeah. pretty clear. It wasn't just based on, you know, the, the movie wasn't based on the book at all. I, I kind of think from what I read about the movie, it seemed like they just kind of wanted to make a certain sort of movie and they kind of glommed this story onto the movie. Some, some like ideas they had for drawing a future city and like the title of the movie has nothing to do with the book. Yeah. It's like some other book that they took a title yeah. from that was attached well, to at a least, different screenplay. At least, at least this was from an actual book, right? The, the not as good Philip K. Dick adaptations usually come from short stories. So they have like, you know, five pages of source material yeah, and, yeah. And is that what total, two, is total Recall a, f- a full book, or is it, or is it a short? No, story? No, it's a short. It's a short story. It's uh, called. Okay. Um, it's called. Uh, uh, we can remember it for you for wholesale or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, that's right. But so probably uh, no, probably no three-breasted woman on Mars. Uh, that's not in there. Probably the mutants. I'm guessing they added. I don't really know. I'm just trying to figure. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know if he goes to Mars in the short story. I mean, it's been a, it's been a long time since I've read it. But, but they added. They added. Yeah. You know, the, you know the part where he goes to Mars. They added that. <laughs> they're like, they're like, okay, Phil, love the story. Want to just make a couple of small little tweaks? First, not on Earth, on Mars. <laughs> That's Second, pretty random. <laughs> yeah. that's pretty random notes yeah like yeah that's that's the guy that just suggests that for everything right he suggests it for like you know <laughs> have you seen have you seen the bit where the guy suggests like does a he does like a brainstorm session to get ideas for gremlins too oh, no. oh my god you'd love it. you got to look it up it's just like it's like the the running gag is that it's just people saying insane things and the guy's like that's it it's in the movie it's in the movie and then at the end it's just like all these things are actually in the movie it's like 
I want a Batwing Gremlin that flies That's across good. the city. I want an electric Gremlin that comes out of the plugs. And it's like, it's like, fine. It's in the movie. It's in the movie. Stupid. <laughs> it's a uh, key good. and peel. It's a key and peel sketch. Oh, nice. I, lo- I love them. There's a yeah. great. Uh, there's a great onion. Like onion. The onion has a fake uh, morning show. Like they have videos for a fake morning show, and okay. they had one where they talked to the five-year-old screenwriter of Fast and the Furious Five. And so like so like he's this little kid and he's like so the car goes pow and the other car goes into the ocean and then they show that in the movie and it's like the show like a car like <laughs> that's the same another one i love it yeah it's the same yeah joke. okay but one thing the movie ignores is philip k dick is is i think really funny i think there are a lot of really funny parts like with the mood organ at the beginning where they're yeah. dialing in yeah, yeah, yeah and he's like yeah. he's telling his wife like dial in you know happy and he's like and she's like but if i'm depressed i'm not gonna even want to dial in happy right and then he's like dial, dial, in, dial in acceptance in. of everything your husband says <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, no but then he's like dial in the feeling of wanting to dial in something better and she's like but i don't even want <laughs> yeah. that and so yeah you know there are a lot of there are a lot of philip k dick books uh there are really kind of you know very i don't know if satirical is the right word but there are funny moments with technology there's another book i can't remember exactly yeah. which one well so so where... one of the one of the basic facts of science fiction i always think is it's like you set up an an, an idea a concept you know something that could develop in the future and then you see where it goes with it and it's almost yeah. like this version is like it would also cause funny circumstances. So it's like that's part of the way he's writing the science fiction. He's like it would be there would be a lot of comical conversations if you could control your emotions. You know, if yeah. you could dial in emotions. I can't remember what the thing is called, but the uh, the Penfield or something, right? Is it the, the, Yeah, the Penfield mood organ. Yeah. Yeah. The pen yeah. There's the another there's another Philip K Dick book where a guy like everything is is like coin or money operated and okay. everything is like like sentient and so a guy doesn't have money to leave his apartment because he can't afford to pay his like doorknob and so he's like arguing <laughs> with the doorknob so there's like two pages he's just arguing with the doorknob about why the doorknob should let him in for free or something like yeah that. yeah yeah I, now that you're saying that yeah i mean i wasn't like you know falling over laughing while reading this but they're they're comical conversations it's a bit like uh, we did a previous show about macbeth and it was like sometimes yeah. in Shakespeare, there are conversations that are funny in a very dry yeah. kind of way. You're like, yeah, this is a funny bit, but I'm not exactly laughing out loud. So that's probably why they didn't do it in a movie. But also, you know, it's a, I think it would be a weird tone to hit in a movie, right? Like darkly science fiction and like right. kind of very right. dystopian, right? Because the book is dystopian yeah. too, right? There, you know, um, the Earth has like all these issues and, uh, yeah. But then also funny, I think is a hard tone to hit with a movie. Right. Yeah. It works better in a book, um, especially, yeah. I mean, Ridley Scott, he's just not a guy that's trying to make you laugh when he makes a movie. So I thought alien was hilarious. Was yeah, movie. Right. <laughs> Actually aliens. The second one, the James Cameron one, it has a couple of minute moments where there's a little bit of a quip or that's, something. But yeah, but that's James Cameron. So it's more yeah. of like a blockbuster. I, honestly, kind of I think that's thing. why I, I think that's why I always enjoyed that one more than I enjoyed the first aliens. Cause I need a little bit of relief. It's hard for me to watch two hours of like, yeah. I mean, I never loved blade runner. Like, I mean, I, I definitely see yeah. it as being a very good movie, but like, I don't want to watch it over and over again. And like, you know, it's, it's just kind of a slog a little bit. I, I actually watched it with my son. He's 10. And he like, I kept looking over and be like, do you like this movie? He's like, yeah, yeah. I love this movie. Like, don't turn it off. Like he really was into it. So I was impressed. 
Well, there's an, I mean, there's kind of a bigger conversation there as to like, you know, what is a, what's a movie's role, right? Because like, obviously, you know, you know, one, one movie I watched for the first time last year was Andre Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice, or not The Sacrifice, Stalker, which is uh, Mm. four and a half hours, very slow moving Russian. It's undoubtedly a work of art, (laughs) but I would I would sooner watch you know there's like that that webcam yeah. that that like watches that pitch drop at that university in like England or something right so it's like watches like, the pitch drop but you mean like uh, like the the pitch liquid so it's like one drop falls every seven <laughs> yeah, years yeah, or something I, I would sooner I that. watch yeah. that than watch yeah. Stalker again right I know so, I know exactly what you're talking about yeah that's like the the most viscous substance known to humanity right <laughs> something yeah, like that yeah. and it like yeah, yeah I know exactly what you're talking about yeah that's funny. Yeah. Apparently yes, I would there was a watch, drop yeah. that fell and the webcam wasn't working. And it's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, like of the, all the times for the, there's like one drop yeah. of like, so like five years. It's like, you really can't get the webcam working just for that. You know, you know, there was some guy watching like, and that's when, that's when he, he was like, oh no, it cut out. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> He's been watching for like 20 years, just never leaving his computer. He's like, here it goes. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I don't know where I heard about that. Oh, I read a book about like chemistry superlatives and they mentioned that that's what it was. Cause they also mentioned, <laughs> you know, you know, Vanta black, like the blackest substance known to humanity. Yeah. They talked about that. There were a bunch of things like that in the book. So pretty, oh, pretty, oh, I, pretty good times, pretty good times. And pretty good read. <laughs> speaking, all I know, of, all I know we're headed up to the, we headed up to the beach. I get the sunblock, I get the beach towels and I get my book of chemistry superlatives. <laughs> those are, those are the, the three main things you gotta, you gotta have. You're laughing, but I would rather read that than like most of what you see people reading at the beach. You know, like oh, yeah. one of those, yeah, one of those like dime a dozen uh, spy thrillers or whatever that you always see people reading. Like, um, they yeah. made a movie of like Jack Reacher, and I was like, "What the hell is Jack Reacher?" Like, I'd never heard of that. <laughs> and it was like, apparently, there's like 45 books about it. It's like a big, oh, really? a big, uh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's no, like the I'm airport, talking. the airport kind of book. Yes. Like, the, yeah, yeah. What do you think was, I don't know. What do you think was like the biggest difference with the movie? Not to talk about that again, but <laughs> I feel like that keeps coming up uh, in my mind. So, I, thought, I thought like the Rutger Howard, like the Roy Batty character is like yeah. a fat slob in the, yeah. in the book. And I was like, wait a minute. What, what, where the, he's like a, the superhuman. Well, you know, I think killing actually, machine. actually, actually, I should, I should ask you, um, uh, how how many spoilers are we allowed to say in this thing? Because I don't want to spoil. We're assuming that you either read the book or you're not. Or done don't it. care. Okay. Yeah, um, so yeah. so I will. I would say that one of the biggest one of the biggest differences, at least I found, you know, rereading the book more recently. I think I know which spoiler you're talking about. Probably right. It, one of the themes of the book is that the difference or the thing that actually makes people human is like empathy or kindness. Uh right and this is almost never touched on in the movie except with like the empathy test right so they they do they do give that empathy test in the in the movie and they're not Mm -hmm. really i I can't remember they're not super clear about what's going on there right no they're not no you're totally like stuff yeah there's that bit where they're the first guy that's getting interviewed the first android that gets interviewed he's that weird looking actor that used to be in a yeah. bunch of stuff. Yeah, the he's, character, a, he's a character, character actor, actor guy. guy. Yeah. And I remember watching that and being like, what is going on here? Like, what yeah, am I, too. What, why are you asking about a turtle? What does that even mean? Because they don't explain <laughs> the world building is why yeah. people would have these big reactions to something bad happening to an animal. 
right? Like animals are like almost extinct and very rare in the book. And so if something bad happens to a turtle, like honestly, in real life, in the real world, people hurt turtles like for fun. Yeah. They have no empathy yeah. towards something like a turtle. Well, They're but, definitely I mean, human. Maybe, maybe Philip, maybe Philip K. Dick is saying like, you know, that's kind of even if some people have less of this quality, it's a defining quality to be empathetic to like something that can't give you something, right? Like if you're empathetic to right. like, you know, he gets a goat. Uh, it, it is a goat he gets later. In the- he gets a goat. He has an electric yeah, sheep, gets- and then he gets a goat later. Um, and so it could be like, you know, even if someone doesn't have a lot of that quality that's a quality that you know imagine a machine is trying to make a fake human that's something you mm-hmm. wouldn't program in because it's not like an immediate uh benefit right it's not like you know so say we're in like you know some other kind of thing like terminator world where there's some something that becomes self-aware and replicates itself right. or something like that it would never need to program in empathy I feel like that's kind of a very big theme of the book is that empathy is a a fundamentally human thing, right? But do you think he's saying that empathy is not necessary and that's why it's not programmed? Or do you think he's saying that empathy is like impossible to program? Because I kind of got the impression that they're trying to fool people with these androids to some extent, but they for some reason can't program empathy, which every time I hear one of these things in science fiction, I'm like, if your brain can do it, a computer can do it. There's no difference. It's just a really complicated computer. So why the hell couldn't you program empathy into a, into an Android? I, 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 that kind of always falls flat for me. It's like, I think a lot of people just think there's something magical about the human brain. It, It couldn't be copied by a machine. And I'm like, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy that at all. I think that was a Dr. Katz episode where some guy was like, I was thinking the other day that, the brain is just the most incredible part of the body. But then I was uh-huh. like, Oh, wait a second. Look at what's telling me that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the brain's like, you know what the best part of your body is the brain right yeah. here. <laughs> you know what I don't understand is like in, in the middle ages, people used to believe that the consciousness was seated in your heart. How yeah. are you not? I think Ar- Aristotle, your... Aristotle believed that, didn't he? But are you not experiencing your thoughts in your head? I do. That's where my thoughts are. They're in my head. Like, there's no. I'm not like, oh, yeah, there's a message coming I in from my know. foot. Like, I don't. I, how do you? <laughs> I, I don't get that. There must be some really yeah. complex. There's some really complicated theories. There's this one called the bifurcated mind theory, where people yeah. used to not experience the consciousness the way we do um it's really complicated it's kind of hokey i'm not like a big fan of it but maybe there's some idea out there that like only because we know about the brain is why we experience it in our heads but i'm like i don't think so i remember being like a little tiny kid and i was definitely thinking in my head i was not thinking with like other parts of my body that yeah i guess it i guess it makes the most sense because that's where a lot of the perception is done right like you know your eyes sure. and your ears and the sensory so kind of like yeah. yeah so you're maybe like you know, well, you can feel sense that the thoughts are closest to that, but you yeah. feel everywhere, right? So it's yeah, the, you feel everywhere. The things yeah, so, that are more um, localized are around around. So the one thing we so one thing we haven't done yet is uh, on this podcast we drink a drink that's related okay. to. So this is your choice. This book is your choice. So the the drink is your choice. But I had to go ahead of time. Usually it's a surprise for the person that's having it foisted upon them. But in this okay. case, that doesn't work. So. What are we drinking first of these two things you chose? So I'm really, really sorry about this. <laughs> are we actually <laughs> going to drink one of these things that you chose because it's painful? 
Can we drink maybe just a little bit of it? Yeah, I think that's probably the way to go. I don't think we want to. Um, what did you? What What was your brand, by the way? So I got a Heineken. Wait, um, we're just having a beer. Actually, we're just having a beer is what we're doing, right? I'm gonna open this up, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna. I have a Guinness. You have a Heineken. We're both gonna yeah. drink a beer. Perfectly normal, non-replicant. Nothing strange about this beer, except that it tastes really bad. Because what's the gimmick? The gimmick is that it's a uh, it's a non-alcoholic beer. So yeah, and it is just not the same as the real thing. It is really not. I, actually, I, you I know what? Say, mine actually tastes. Mine tastes like a Heineken. I don't really like how Heineken tastes very much, but mine does taste like a Heineken. This this doesn't taste like a Guinness, um, but it does have like an after, like a chocolatey aftertaste that's not unpleasant. It's really weird. Premium non-alcoholic sure? malt beverage from the makers of Guinness. Yes, yeah, so um, I don't think it's supposed to replicate Guinness because it doesn't have like no, it doesn't like, taste anything like, like Guinness, or anything. No. It's not an unpleasant drink. I was talking to the guy when I bought this. I was thinking, well, you know, it does have 0.5 alcohol per per volume. So I was trying to think. Hey, you're my math guy. How many of those do I have to drink to feel like I had, I don't know, two beers, right? It's got to be like 20, give or take. Well, yeah, but the like a Coors Light is like 4%, right? So I'd need yeah, eight of the, yeah. I'd need 16 of these to feel like I drank two Coors Lights, which doesn't feel but like I, anything. So I don't know why. I'm... But I think there's also something about the dilution of alcohol in other liquid. Like if you drink. Right. Well, isn't that what 0.5% you, means? Yeah, but there's. Right. It's if you ingest 10 of these calibers, right, then you have 10 times the actual stuff that you've ingested and the same amount of alcohol. So this is the same reason that, like, you know, 80 proof liquor is more dangerous because you it just know, gets it absorbed come with all the extra stuff. Exactly. It just gets yeah. absorbed faster Thanks. is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I, I can see that. That's a that's a merit. That's a meritable hypothesis I'll, I'll i'll grant that i think that might be true i don't know you know honestly if someone if i were at like a dinner or something and someone gave me this heineken and didn't tell me it was like non-alcoholic i probably wouldn't know like, yeah i mean if somebody well you know what so there's this russian drink called kvass which is yeah, like yeah, i've had it kind of like a, yeah you kind of like it's kind of like what you'd make beer from basically yeah and it's kind of bubbly. This is a lot like that. This is, tastes like drinking a kvass, which, you know, it's okay. It's not something I would choose to drink on a regular basis. So I apologize for the, the drink choice, but obviously <laughs> I thought it was kind of a, I thought it was kind of like a, a good metaphor because you're drinking this thing. It tastes like a beer. It looks like a beer, right? But there's something that's just missing. And I won't make the obvious pun with like spirit or something because you could make that pun, but I'm not getting. I'm not getting it. So make it. Go for it. Dad joke. No, I mean, I, well, I don't think it's like like you know the thing that makes a human. Oh, human you're saying like a spirit, and then yeah, like also like yeah. alcoholic spirit or something right. like that. So but, the, yeah, the spirit. Yeah, the ghost in the machine. But I think the spirits and yeah. All right. Yeah, but I think like the kind of the idea being that obviously we know what makes this different from a regular beer. Is there's no alcohol in it. It's kind of like you know there's. You know, in the in the in the book, they talk about these intangible qualities that make, you know, people different from, you know, inauthentic people. Do we have to drink the whole thing? I would vote for no. I mean, but. you know, it's kind of a dirty secret about alcoholic beverages is that, um, you know, we learn as we get older. We learn to actually appreciate the taste of some of some alcoholic beverages. You know, like I like certain wines. I like good cocktails. I like a good beer. But frankly, I wouldn't yeah. drink them if they didn't have alcohol in them. 
they don't taste that good. I wouldn't just sit around drinking beer, you know, just for the taste of beer. If I didn't, if there wasn't a little bit of alcohol in it, that's definitely part of the point. You know, yeah. I think most people, most people try to pretend that's not the case. They're like, Oh no, I just enjoy the taste. I'm like, well then you could drink anything. If you were like, if you like were running on a hot day or something and you had a cold non-alcoholic beer at the end of the run, you know, if you were given the choice between that and water, water is awfully good when I'm hot. I live in the desert. How is it? Is it? It's not yeah. nowhere near as arid where you are as it is here, right? Like no, you guys are. No. Like, no, it's probably pretty humid. It actually. gets pretty humid. Yeah. 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 Okay. But if I go out for a run and I come back here, I want water. That's that's what I want to drink. Like it's. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was thinking about the whole Mars thing with this book, but you're saying the Total Recall. They don't even go to Mars in the book, so there's no yeah, connection there. This one. No, it's Mars. Moon, right. No, it's Mars. Oh, it is Mars. All, okay. All, yeah, all the androids are from Mars. Because I was wondering, is this before? people had sent the first probes to Mars and like learned that Mars was just rocks. Yeah, definitely. It's gotta be right. Yeah. It must've been, before. Well, it's 1968, but it's close. Yeah. So I feel like that's in the early seventies where they sent like Mariner. I think so. Things like that to, to Mars. So Robert Heinlein's book, red planet, which is from the fifties. I think it's not, it's not much older than this. It's like all about like a green Mars where there's like plants growing everywhere and stuff. And it's, you know, yeah. like immediately became obsolete. Like, not long after the book was written. So we were talking about what's that the, before. What's the story between before, like, what's the story about the, it was like a mistranslation or something about the canals of Mars. I can't remember that, but like, uh, it's this right, guy, they, they used this to think that named, Mars had actual canals. On yeah. It, right? It's a, uh, there was this guy named Schiaparelli who was one of the first people to look at Mars in detail. And he just, he just convinced himself he was seeing lines on the surface of Mars. And it was almost like, yeah. you know, you know, pareidolia where you like kind of see your, no, your brain. No. Kind of, it's like, you remember, remember the, 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 the face on Mars that everybody used to talk about. Yeah. Or it's just, it's yeah. just some rocks, just some rocks laying together, but the human mind imprints a, a shape onto it, a pattern onto it. And that's pareidolia. Yeah, so I think that's what Schiaparelli and those early guys were doing. They were just seeing lines and creating an idea. I mean, he had a maps of the canals that he could see and other people yeah. were going and corroborating his maps of the canals, like making little corrections to them and stuff. Oh, and there's crazy. absolutely nothing there. There's nothing that even looks like a canal on yeah. the surface of Mars. So um, people just peer pressure, I think, or, or suggestion, the power of suggestion. Suge yes, I think suggestion. Yeah. We were talking about how uh, Clint is always saying how you should never tell somebody like tasting notes on a, on a wine or a beer or whatever, because if you do, there's just no chance they're not going to taste that. Like you have to just yeah. let people taste it for themselves. Um, Cause that suggestion is pretty powerful. So um, how old were you when you first read this book? Um, I think I was actually out of college. So maybe 22 okay. or so um, when I, you know, we graduated college, I think the same year we were around and at I, the same time. I don't remember if we graduated. Same time. Yeah. So right after college, I moved down to Charlottesville where I just kind of stayed with some friends and was unemployed. And I was reading a lot of Kurt Vonnegut at the time. Nice. And a friend of a friend said, if you like Kurt Vonnegut, you really should read Philip K. Dick because okay. Philip K. Dick is essentially Kilgore Trout, right? This like character that Kurt Vonnegut sort of is like, is like a more Kurt Vonnegut version of Kurt Vonnegut himself right that science okay. fiction writer that's on in, in all the uh not all yeah of them, no yeah, quite yeah a few I, of them. I remember him from breakfast at breakfast of champions um yeah I don't think he's in slaughterhouse five right or is that the guy that he writes about being in Dresden in slaughterhouse five is Kilgore Trout I don't I don't think so I don't think so, so right I remember him from breakfast of champions but but anyway so so I think why, why is that like Philip K Dick what do you think is like 
How is that? I think just, I mean, Phil, like Kurt Vonnegut was kind of amazing because he was very, he really found his way into the mainstream, but he is a science fiction writer, right? A lot of his books are very, yeah. you know, without the, you know, there are obviously science fiction books that are just very, you know, cliche and like, you know, the robots versus, I don't know, the vampires or something like that. Yeah, yeah maybe that's not a book. That's but, a thousand no. times, thousand times. That's yeah. Done. Yeah. yeah, I'm really tired um, of watching that. Honestly. Yeah. You know, I think I think one thing about Philip K. Dick and one thing about this book in particular. So I recently reread this book as part of a book club. And okay. we had read other, you know, this is definitely the most kind of or the least classic thing so far in the in the book club. So we've read Brothers Karamazov, which I'd read before, okay. but I really I mean it's just such a brilliant book. Uh I read, read Crime of Human Punishment. Bondage. I read Crime and Punishment. I never read Brothers Karamazov. I read Oh, Brothers Karamazov is so I got so much more when I read it the second time. So in this in this book group, you know, we read a lot of very classic books. You know, a lot of people would put Brothers Karamazov up there as as you know maybe the best novel ever written, right? And okay. what kind of surprised me is that is that this book, it wasn't like, you know, obviously it's not it's not a world classic in the same way that you know, Brothers Karamazov is, but it yeah, does this is, still yeah, have, this is it a does still have deep themes, right? I mean, it does still have deep themes. It's not like, you know, you read one book and there are all these important kind of subtle themes. And then you read this and it's like, who's going to win the robot or the bounty hunter? No, right? it's, no, it's really about, no, there's it's a lot kind going of deceptively. On, yeah. It's, it's kind of deceptive in that way. There are a lot of subtle themes in it. Um, and mm -hmm. so I thought that was kind of it. One of the things that caught me is, you know how there's this character who's the chicken head. Right, Isidore? Yeah, J.R. Isidore, yeah. So I kept thinking about that character, and it was only towards the end of the book that I realized that the 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 cruelty with which everybody treats this guy completely yeah. turns on the head the idea that everyone's so empathic in this world. Yeah. Because they're treating yeah, this human exactly. being who's like... And I didn't re even really think he sounded all that much less intelligent than a normal person from the way he was yeah. written. I think it was just yeah. kind of got branded with these ideas. It was completely unfair. And like he was just getting crapped on in a way that proved that that's the empathic thing is not what's going on. I, there's something else going on. I didn't really. Also, it's it's you know it it doesn't say a lot about the people that they're very like you said they're empathetic towards animals because the animals are valuable, right? But like yes, right, right, not valuable because he's just right. another well, human, right? He's well, first of valuable. all, they're scarce. They're scarce, right? So that's part yeah. of it. But also, just there's that catalog, the Sydney's catalog, that tells you exactly. You know, he has the spider, and he's yeah. like, oh, that that was worth you know like a hundred dollars. How could you destroy it? Yeah. And when when the goat gets pushed off the roof, um, yeah. the, she's just like, oh, the waste. She's not like really hurt about yeah. the goat being dead. She hardly got time to get attached to the goat. I didn't understand at first, maybe the first 50 or 60 pages. I was like, what is he talking about with the way these people talk about animals? I did not understand yeah. what was going on with that. I was like, what, what do you want a goat for? What is it, why do you want an electric sheep? None, none of it made a lot of sense to me. So, so well, it, it, kind of remind, the, it kind of reminds me a bit of like, right. I think Emerson has that quote where if, if we only saw the stars like once every hundred years, it would be like this huge event. Right. Right. And so, you know, animals are, animals are absolutely incredible. It's just, right. We have a lot of them. So we, you know, obviously we kind of become desensitized to how amazing they are. So, yeah. So yeah. if anything, the scarcity helps them appreciate like, Oh my God, I have this goat. Like this is an incredible incredible uh animal right 
Yeah. Moving out, uh, moving out to New Mexico has kind of taught me that like, you know, when I was younger and I'd come out to places like this, I'd see the mountains and the landscapes and I'd just be like blown away. I'd be like, Oh, this is amazing. I never seen anything like it, you know? And there's still that sense when you live here, but it dulls, you know, you're not getting that excited every time you see the mountain range. And it's like, we grew up in DC and I always just took that for granted. I mean, not really. I always enjoyed going to the museums and stuff. I did, but it didn't blow my mind the way it would if I was from here originally yeah. i would have gone to dc and been like oh my god the smithsonian i've never seen it you know i'm kind of like that yeah absolutely I go, I, I go and i visit the museums and they it's it's pretty amazing to see them so you can definitely take pretty wonderful things for granted um if you're yeah you know desensitized to them i think also another thing is the is is the kind of craziness that happens with mercer at the end what is it what is happening in the last bit when he gets out of the car and he gets hit in the head by something Finds the mechanical toad. What is going on in that scene? Because it sort of says to me that the Mercerism thing is not fake because he has some kind of legit yeah. experience, right? Well, it's, really, it's what's, actually, what's actually, it reminds me a lot of Brothers Karamazov, where Brothers Karamazov, there are a lot of things that happen in it um, mm-hmm. that kind of are sort of allegories for faith in a way, like something okay. where a character can't be sure that something happened but they kind of think that that's the way like the world should be. And so they sort of have this faith that's not backed up by something empirical. And Dostoevsky is very, he seems like he's very against, you know, there being empirical justifications for faith, right? He's very against people saying like, this is why I believe in this certain, you know, you know, uh, belief structure and, and there's empirical proof for it. He's very against that. And so I think, you know, part, a lot of the book is what makes humans human and what are what are the sort of intangibles of being human. And one okay. thing is, you know, humans throughout the world have various, have faith in various forms. And what Mercer kind of symbolizes is sort of that transcendent experience, right? And it's made, I think it's made even more kind of, uh, you know, uh, pointed by the fact that that other show claims to like have disproven it and said like oh you know we found this studio where they're faking the mercer or the empathy but they're, box thing but they're fake right buster friendly's we, we don't know he? we don't know There's I, i'm a, pretty sure sh- no i think he's saying that buster friendly and the people that visit him are androids because they don't age um yeah they're they're broadcast from somewhere like the, he was he was asking all these questions about it that i was like oh okay so I, I, that's what i thought he was saying Is now that, that you mention it there's not to get off topic, but there's uh, I think he intentionally doesn't say whether Phil Resch is an android. Phil Resch. Right? Yeah, they, right. Yeah. They sit down and they do the empathy test. Deckard definitely decides that he's not an android. Deckard, Deckard brings him up later on in the book as an example of a human that can't feel empathy for androids. And that's why there's something yeah. wrong with that guy, Resch. Um, I don't know if Phil, I don't know if the author passes judgment on it. I definitely, I think Decker definitely is saying he's definitely not an android from from the test that he yeah, took. Yeah, but at at and, the moment, it's 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 kind of ambiguous at the moment, right? It's it is. It definitely is at the moment. Yeah, um, but I think he seemed to have made a decision about it afterwards. That part was weird. That was I the almost different police station. Part, yeah, you mean? I almost think that Deckard might be an android in the book. I almost think yeah. that that whole setup with the fake building and everything might be saying that he's got false memories. 
Um, cause yeah. that part, that part really did kind of throw me off. I was like, wait a minute. What's it, it all? It just, it all just got really surreal here. There's a whole setup of a fake other yeah. building. And that's, am I supposed to believe that? Or is that something in Deckard's head? So I don't know. I don't think it it's seems answerable. like, it seems like a lot of stuff to set up just right. to have, just to fill, fool this one guy. Right. Why right. set it up as a police station? You know, a whole building to protect six androids. All right. Maybe there's more androids yeah. than that. That might be, that's another idea. It may be saying that. There's androids just running rampant. They're all over the place. There's a whole like shadow yeah, that's you know, true. city that's true. of androids that are setting up you know, these kind of scams and stuff. Because how did that girl get to be an opera singer and stuff like that? How did that happen? She just yeah, worked her way into I that? Mean, I don't know. How long were they there? I don't think they were even there that long. right? I don't think they're supposed to have been there for more than a couple of weeks or something. I think it's a short term. Yeah, thing. so how did she? Well, they're just like open auditions or something and she just well the rush thing in the rush sequence where he's at the fake police station that guy's been there for years yeah yeah i can't the, the remember police, the, but his, the police his chief. chief yeah yeah so there's definitely more androids running around than just a couple of i think i think it may be sort yeah. of what's that have you ever have you ever heard the term harness bull no i hadn't i hadn't what in the that one and then a word i never want to hear again is dism dism elevated like people get yeah, off remember. people get off an elevator and he's like they dism elevator and i was like never again we're not using that word like they got off the elevator we're good there like i was even thinking like were elevators new in 1968 why was he saying that where, where did that come from like just out of <laughs> the total left field that they're not even elevators have been around for like 50 years at the time it's not yeah need a, it also seems it seems really weird that, you know, Philip K. Dick is writing about androids and replicants and stuff. And then he's, and you know, journeys to Mars and stuff. And then he's really like enthralled by an elevator. <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> right. whoa, what is this thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speaking of things that have lasted for 50 years, I don't, do we have to finish this? Because I don't no, know if I can. Not I don't, let's not finish let's, it. Um, let's, not finish let's, it. Let's, let's pop the real drink that we got okay, for, right. uh, for the podcast today. So you suggested that they, they drink I think Chablis in one part. Yeah. So uh, if you and, remember, uh, you J.R. Remember? Isidore, J.R. Uh-huh. Isidore brings in Chablis that he's been storing and he, and he shares it with the androids. Right. So, yes. Yes. And it's probably worth who knows how much in this world. Right. If I'm allowed to like maybe read too much into symbolism of, of stuff. You yes, know, you are. What he's sh- okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> what he's sharing with the androids is, it could be argued that like, you know, winemaking is kind of a very human thing. Well, androids have no reason to like ferment things and drink them, right? Whereas, you know, does look at all the energy them? that's- I wasn't clear oh, maybe, on whether- Maybe it does. I wasn't maybe clear on whether they could eat and drink. And I guess they could, because they talk about they eating. Can, yeah. He brings them some food. So they yeah. may metabolize alcohol the same way as people do. They may get but drunk. Would they have the same, but would they have the same, you know, preference for like, oh, you know, this is a Chablis- or this is, you know, a no. Chardonnay. Would they, Although, would they care about that as much? If if Pris could, was it Pris? Is she the one that's on the opera? If they could learn to be an opera singer, uh, why Luba couldn't Luft they learn? Is the one. Luba left, you're right. Opera. Yeah. If they could learn to do that, why couldn't they learn to appreciate wine too? I guess and that's, that's true. By that extension, fancy, fancy things. Why couldn't you program them to have empathy? I'm going back to that again because that just bothers <laughs> me. I don't, I don't understand why you couldn't just write that program. That seems probably because he doesn't have much of a concept of this being a computer. Yeah. 1968. I'm not sure he because because think about all the other things that are going on in this world that should be computerized or electronic that aren't. There was a, there's a whole bunch of things that are more like there's like a laser tube. There's a couple of household objects. 
that clearly oh um roy batty sets up a like a tripwire kind of thing remember that yeah, that's right and when he's talking when he's talking <clears throat> about that it's clearly not a computerized system there's no computer involved in that so i think philip yeah. k dick has at least in this book no conception of like miniaturized electronics and computers and it's just completely think, skipping. So I think maybe it's just the idea that you could program empathy just doesn't make sense or something like that. You're, I you're, think also, I, I think also just Philip K. Dick likes the idea of technology, not being able to reach certain things. Like in, right. in some of his other books, in some of his other books, the uh, they have like, you know, machines that can replicate anything. And so this makes currency kind of impossible, right? Because you get like a hundred dollar bill and you replicate it, you know, 10 million times, right? right. So it turns out the only things that machines can't replicate for whatever reason are like truffle skins. And so people pay for things in truffle skins in this wow. book, right? So, okay, okay. So that's I think he likes that as a theme. Like you can do something sure. that's almost a complete simulacrum of something but there's always going to be just one tiny, you know, thing missing. You know, there's a lot of that. And it's not just in science fiction, but like, for instance, in Harry Potter, there's like a whole character who's based <clears> around <throat> the idea that some, some of the wizards are fascinated with muggle technology. So it's like an opportunity to bring muggle technology into things a bunch of times. It's almost like the author thinks that you'll be comforted by having some normal stuff around. Um, so it's like, yeah. you have like a place where the technology can't go in a sci-fi book, you know, like in Dune, for instance, in Dune, they have these, you know, laser weapons and like energy shields and stuff. And they discover that if you use artillery, you can get through the energy shields. And it's like, yeah, yeah. it's almost like the author just feels comforted by like, Oh yeah. Well, something from the 20th century is just as good as your, you know, future tech. Like, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of that. That's not the only place where that happens. I think there's a lot of sort of, um, is atavistic the right word? It's like atavistic technology in some of these books. It sort of is like a throwback to something. You're like, I'm not sure that would still be there. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think there is something comforting, right? About, you know, there's, there's something that's very unnerving about, you know, technology and, and replication of things. And so I think mm. a lot of what Philip K. Dick is kind of, you know, shooting for is the idea that there'll always be some, something that has to remain authentic kind of throughout. Yeah. yeah which is a comforting thought to me, but I don't think it's necessarily true. I think yeah. every time I see like a little kid with an iPad that like never leaves looking at the iPad, I'm like, I like the world a lot better when people have to put those things down every once in a while, but I just don't think yeah. that's where things are going. I think people are going to be looking at them constantly in the future. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to be wrong about that, but well, it's kind of a it. natural, it's kind of a natural progression, right? Like, you know, you just look at things more and more and they're, they're engineered to get you to look at them more and more. Right. So any kind of, any kind of pushing against, you know, look, looking at screens, you know, with increasing frequency is kind of like someone who, what is it? The first like personal computer, the Apple comes out and they're like, I'm still going to use the typewriter. And it's like, you can do that, yeah. but yeah. you're still, you know, you're not going to stem yeah. the tide of like personal right. computers coming. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've mentioned it to my to friends a couple of times that have like young kids and I'm like, I really try not to let them use screens. I mean, at least not iPads and things like that, because I think it's kind of an addictive behavior and people look at me like I'm crazy. You know, they're just like, Oh no, they need to know about computers. You know, here's, here's the iPad to the kid. And I'm like, 
you, maybe I'm, maybe I am crazy. I don't know, but I, it doesn't seem like something well, I, I want to give to my kids. Like, well, I think there's, I think there's is, a very is that you, real, is that you making that noise or do you have no, no, that's, cat? that's a, that's a cat, an electric cat okay. that's been programmed to ask for food at exactly 1030. Yeah, I think there's, and, and you know, maybe this is something that, that people are looking at, but I think there's actually a very uh, physiological thing that happens when people are so kind of tuned into screens. And, and mm -hmm. one time we were at, we were at a pizza place in Memphis and there was a little girl who was sitting on, you know, like the, uh, the, the, the kid seats that go on top of regular, you know, regular seats at a restaurant. A booster seat. It's like a plastic. Yeah. Like a, thank you. A booster yeah. seat. And, uh, and so I she was kids. looking at it. I have kids. These objects aren't just like foreign things that I never talk about. <laughs> They're actually part of my life. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, what is this amazing thing I read about in a book somewhere? You're like, small version, small oh. versions of adults, Jay. <laughs> okay, okay. But um, so she was sitting on a booster seat. We're at this uh, this pizza place, and she was watching her iPad, or she was playing a game on her iPad. Mm -hmm. And the booster seat like wasn't secured to the seat, so it fell off, and she fell to the side and fell onto like the tile ground. I need right? to know now whether I can laugh at this. Does this kid end up hurt or can I laugh? The kid is not hurt. The kid is not okay. hurt. You're allowed then to I'm, laugh. Then I'm snickering a little bit. Okay. So. so so they pick her back up. So she falls, you know, off the off the chair and falls like on her side. And they pick her up. They're like, <laughs> Are you okay? And she's like, Yes. And they put her back on the booster seat and then secure it. And uh, and then but the I the, the punchline is that the entire time, because I saw it, the entire time her eyes were fixed on the <laughs> iPad, like literally during the fall, which has got to be like, in defiance, be like in defiance of yeah. all evolutionary logic. Yeah, like just yeah exactly. The, like not yeah. trying to like save herself at all. Yeah. Millions of years bad. of evolution, just yeah. like in like, <laughs> like, you know, 10 years with an iPad is just totally undone because I still remember what she looked like falling literally like, you know, on her side and her yeah. eyes were glued the entire time. Right. Sometimes I think it's like, okay, I'm crazy. I'm just an old guy. I don't like change. But then other times I'm like, maybe it's going to be a generation for now. It'll be like people look at it the way they'd look at you. Like, you know, there's some things that happened in the fifties where they put a kid in front of the TV and they'd watch TV all day and they'd eat a TV dinner while watching the TV. And we look back at that and we're like, Oh my God, they weren't thinking about their kids at all. Like 30 years from now, we're going to look back and be like, do you remember when people used to just hand their kids an iPad and let them watch it all day with no care yeah. about the addictive traits of that thing? You know, yeah. I don't know. I could go ahead and I, I really can't predict the future very well, but it seems to me like that, that kind of seems like we're going to be sorry that we let kids have that much access to it. I mean, and I see people, I know, I know people are like single parents and stuff like that, and they just need to keep the kids quiet for a few minutes. And I get that. Um, try not to be judgmental about that, but I don't think it's good for kids. You know, it's easy to say like, okay, well, this is a new technology and we're not, we're not going to kind of fall into, into the trap of like really fully embracing it, but um, not to bring up the pandemic again, but think about how much people's, you know, think about how much your own viewpoint has changed over the year of the pandemic. Like now you know, I'll be watching a show from pre-pandemic and like one person will be talking like two inches from someone else's face. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. You know, or, yeah. Or like someone will go, go and hug like four people and I'll be like, 
or they just you get you up and do that. They just get up and leave the house and go to someplace and nobody puts on a mask. I just had that thought in the back yeah. of my head. Like, where's your mask? What are you doing? What are you doing? We took, we yeah. went to, so Texas is like completely open. Maybe Oklahoma is yeah. too. I don't know. Yeah. But we went, uh, yeah, we, we are. I'm, I'm vaccinated. Karina's fully vaccinated. So we went to a game, a triple A game, the Chihuahuas down in El Paso. And um, we got there. And, you know, it's outdoors. Karina and I took off our masks because we're outdoors. And my son wouldn't take his off. He was, like, freaking out about taking his mask off. And yeah. Karina was like, Karina was like, I'm a doctor. I'm telling you, you're not going to get sick outdoors. Like, you're going to be fine. And he was, like, yeah. really uncomfortable. And I was like, man, what have we done to this kid? Like, he's, like, yeah. like all paranoid about this now. I felt kind of bad well, about how, it. How old is he? He's I 10. Think he just said, but he's 10. He's 10. So he's been, he's been wearing a mask. It's like twenty like percent of his life. Of his life. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, my daughter, my daughter just five. remembers from five. Yeah, my daughter's five. So I mean, she's even more so. You know, um, yeah. although she's a less cautious, less cautious personality. So to bring up the book uh, again, um, we probably so should. What's? Yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> so what's what's your interpretation of of what happens with Mercer? Um, because I think that's like an in, intentionally very vague. Uh, very vague and kind of very well so, psychedelic so part so what exactly happens so what happens is he gets done with all the androids and stuff um is it before he goes and sleeps for a really long time it is right he's still kind of he's still kind of fried from the experience dealing with the androids he's been awake for like 24 yeah. hours straight so yeah. he drives up to like the oregon border in his hover car parks the hover co- car in sort of a wasteland area goes walking up a hill and has kind of an experience of the Mercer thing, what everybody else sees on the. But he does, the, he, yeah. But he does fuse with Mercer, or like ha, has right when he's taking on the androids in in Isidore's apartment. He does when he's at right, home like, with his Merc- wife, right? No, does Mercer even... appears to him there, and like Mercer like helps him. Oh right, right. When he goes into right. the courtyard, and Mer- Mercer shows yeah, up, and something tells him, like tells that. him Roy Batty's like coming out the door to attack. Oh no, yeah. no. The Rachel Rosen one is coming after him. That's right. I didn't uh, 100% understand what's going on there either. I think yeah. maybe what's going on is that his empathy has been opened up by the connection with Rachel Rosen because he's saying he's going to have a hard time doing this job after that yeah. experience. And so the, the Mercer thing is a metaphor for your empathic connection. It does seem like a religious experience though, right? It does seem like, you know, he has this sort of mm-hmm. kind of experience of, of this this kind of great figure who's helping him in his in his uh, in his journey, right? And 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 it's connected to the opening of the empathy within him. So maybe yeah. he's saying because that, that's what the Mercer thing is about. It's people bonding with each other and empathizing with each other. I don't know, honestly. I kind of was left a little bit like, what just happened here? I didn't really understand it. And then the toad so is fake. You, yeah, the toad that's, doing that's there? so that's so brutal. Like that's yeah. such a so here's kind of a question that I think is, is interesting about science fiction books. Cause I love, you know, I love some science fiction books. I, you know, I love a lot of books that are considered, you know, more kind of. Like, I know you're a big classic, battlefield, like the you're a big battlefield earth fan, right? I love, well, battlefield earth one, two, and then, uh, oh, is it, battlefield oh, earth. Yeah. And then battlefield earth five back to battlefield earth and son of battlefield earth. And then, uh, <laughs> The search for Battlefield Earth. <laughs> search for Battlefield Earth is another one. Have you ever read Battlefield Earth? I've never read any no, Ron Hubbard. No, no. I kind of want to read it to see. Like, you know, I think didn't they say that Philip K. Dick was like 
hugely influenced no, was, by L. Ron Hubbard? I think it was I think it was Heinlein or something like that. I think no, I think it was L. Ron, L. Ron oh, Hubbard. Really? There was a book. Yeah, it was a book. I wrote it down because I was like, oh, is that a good book? And I can't remember. I can't find it really quick. But there was definitely a book by L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard that was like a big influence on him. Possibly. I mean, he was a well-known sci-fi guy before 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 he lost his mind. I think. Yeah. Either. Either that or it's just a, um, what do you call it? Like a, like a, like a, a con. I don't know if it's a con or whether he really believed. I mean, it there's, or... a, there's a maybe apocryphal story of Robert Heinlein betting. Maybe it wasn't Robert Heinlein. It was one of those sci-fi guys betting L. Ron Hubbard that he couldn't start a religion or something like that. Is yeah, that... I've heard that story, but is that true? I, 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 don't, I don't know how true it is. I think what's interesting is, you know, someone like Kurt Vonnegut, right who's written very obvious sci-fi books oh yeah here it right. is like I'm he sorry is... sorry to interrupt oh, you sorry. so it's 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 um no, no. in writing this novel dick was inspired as his writing was in general by the writing of l ron hubbard hubbard's novella fear uh was a horror story that made you feel disjointed from reality itself so it's kind of like the idea of like the sort of oh, themes and the feel of this book which i'm like l ron hubbard you mean the, the scientology guy like i was kind of surprised I was thinking about sort of how weird things are with genres because uh -huh. Philip, Philip K. Dick, right. He is definitely classified as science fiction. And I think recently a lot more literary people like Jonathan Lethem, who's like a big, you know, he's the guy that wrote uh, motherless Brooklyn and he's kind of, he's well-known in kind of like, you know, literary circles and stuff. He's been really into Philip K. Dick and so Philip K. Dick is getting attention from people that, you know, maybe wouldn't normally read science fiction, uh -huh. but there is sort of a weird kind of, you know, these, this genre bias where Kurt Vonnegut is considered good, normal literature. He's not filed in science fiction. No. Right. No, like he's really, like, yeah. if, if, you know, if, if people still went to Barnes and Nobles to get their, their books, right. He wouldn't be in the science fiction section. He would be in, I think. I got this book at Barnes and Noble. Really? I actually, I, I went there and they didn't have it, but then they were like, wait, no, the computer says we have one copy of it. And it was, it was arriving in a box that, mo that morning, like somehow they had Whoa. just ordered that book and it, yeah, I bought it like as soon as it came out of the box, they were, oh, there's probably going to be 20 of them there tomorrow. Cause they're going to, they're going to see their numbers going to be like, wow, these things are, yeah. these things are selling 10 seconds yeah. after we open the box. Like one, we gotta, one per minute, one per minute. So we'll yeah. get, you know, 100% uh, of these books have sold within a, within a minute. So, so yeah, it's kind of a, it's a very strange thing with, with genres and really also just, I think the way we look at art in general is the fact that we take, you know, we take Philip Giddick and we say he's science fiction. We put him in the science fiction section among, right. like you said, things that are a lot more cliche, but Kurt Vonnegut, who's written some Kurt Vonnegut books, could almost be Philip K. Dick books, right? Uh, like, sure. yeah, Cat's Cradle I think or something like that. Cat's Cradle, Slapstick, maybe. Yeah, um, I don't know that one. No, may maybe that's not the right. Is Cat's Cradle the one with Ice Nine that free yeah. the, the thing that freezes everything? Yeah. yeah. So that's um, that's sort of a sci-fi concept. Yeah, he he leans more yeah. into the uh, into the humorous and like especially dark humorous implications of the science fiction ideas he's got than most science fiction does vonnegut i'm saying yeah like yeah definitely absolutely. more of a, more of a focus on like the dark humor of these things and the just sort of um this is a little bit more like i mean it's dystopian and it's i don't think kurt vonnegut makes much of an attempt to make it feel real 
Do you know what I mean? Like any kind of actual prediction yeah. of the future. This one's actually kind of grounded in reality to some extent. So it sort of feels like at least one version of what the future could be. Um, yeah. It's not, it's not like ludicrous. You know I mean? It's not, I don't know if it fires on all cylinders. It seems kind of plausible. But I think Philip K. Dick does, you know, he, he has a status as kind of like a writer that lots of writers like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for that reason, um, you know, there was an episode of The Simpsons. Did you ever see the episode where they, they Homer switches back and forth between a Lego world and then his regular world? No. I don't, so if like, I did, I don't it, remember. It, well, it looks like the Lego movie, right? So it's so there's a there's a world he's in with that's like a Lego world, and then there's a world that's you know, regular Simpsons world. Okay. And in that, uh, in that they play a they play a game that's actually, and they never re- m- mentioned Philip K. Dick, but the game is named after a game in a Philip K. Dick book. Okay. Yeah. Which is like, and it's, it's called Perky Pats. So it couldn't be from anything else. It must be a, yeah, no, that's a not, reference, that's a not, reference to that. Um, not a coincidence. So I get the, yeah, I get the feel. And this is from a book that's not one of his better, better known books called the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. And okay. And so I get the feeling that like a lot of a lot of writers, you know, you know, yeah. really look to Philip sure. Dick for kind of like is kind of like a genre defining uh, person in a way. Right. <laughs> Speaking of things that definitely can't be coincidences, I was uh, my parents would watch like old seventies TV shows when I'd come and visit, and they were watching Chips, and the the mm-hmm. Chips guys like get on the radio and they're like reporting where they're headed, and they're like this is unit seven, Mary three, like headed over there. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's a band. It's <laughs> like a really lousy band that they took their, they must've gotten their name from like the call sign of the guys on chips. I was like, there's no way that's an accident, but, but why, so why weird. are those two things connected? So that's a very weird, uh, that's a very weird band name inspiration too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and in the days before the internet, it's not like people could just Google, seven mary three where'd that come from you'd know in a second today you'd be like oh it's a reference to chips but like back then i actually had to just catch it on tv and i was like oh okay yeah so prior to the internet prior to the internet i think it was a lot easier to make obscure references right you could be like this is what we called our band you'll never figure this out nowadays right right? you could just google it and you're like exactly it actually has to just be surreal today otherwise people will know exactly what you're talking about you just have to select yeah. five words and string them together. So it's not shown towards animals, but like you said, it is shown in the book towards J.R. Isidore, how people are like, you know, objectively right. horrible to him. Right. Right. Uh, right. Maybe like there's some um, kind of conservation of meanness. Like if you're nice to yeah, animals, yeah. If you're like, nice to animals, then you have to yeah. be mean to like, uh, right. I think in a way, Philip K. Dick has a very pessimistic view of human nature, right? Even though he does talk about, yeah empathy as kind of a defining characteristic you know there's a very particular reason that he has J.R. Isidore in there right he doesn't have to make him this guy who's sort of mistreated and you see him even at work and you know excuse me everyone at work is like you know this guy's a chicken head he's an idiot right right and and he finds companionship with the androids because they share that they're like not considered people and not for much good reason or they just don't see like I don't think it even enters into their mind that he's different than the other people right they just see him right they're not like we'll be you know we'll be social or or you know 
are cordial to you because you're in this sort of marginalized group, right? They're just friendly to him because he's there, right? So yeah. in a weird way, they show more empathy towards him than other humans have. But of course, they're pretty they're, cold. You know, they're a little to. cold. They're a little cold towards them. And the one, the one android, keep, well, they actually differ. That's the weird thing. The androids differ in how they respond to him. Some of them yeah. seem to be more empathic towards him. And like Roy Batty keeps yeah. calling him a chicken head and everybody else is like, Hey, you really shouldn't say that. That's not, Oh cool, yeah, he does. Know? He does. I forgot about that. Yeah. So there's sort of like a difference between the androids and I wonder what that's trying to say. Yeah. I, I think he talks about, I think Philip K. Dick talks about empathy in this book, but I don't think he's necessarily saying it's such a universal trait of humans. Um, yeah. I think, I think he's almost kind of like saying the opposite, kind of well, making I, a farce of the idea that it's, that it's innate with being human. You know, that you learn I, what to be empathic for. Something that Philip K. Dick has in common with a lot of like classically great writers is that he's kind of okay in pointing out contradictions, right? He's, uh -huh. you know, he definitely points out the contradiction that people are, you know, they're empathetic towards like, you know, you know, uh, a turtle that they buy that right. costs money and then they treat J.R. Isidore like crap, right? Because, right. right. Uh, and so I think, he's okay pointing that out and pointing out, you know, kind of the weird contradictions and having empathy for other animals or other people. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there's, and there's historic context for that too. You know, there's like the way the founding fathers talked about, you know, the equality oh, yeah. of man and trying to be empathic towards their fellow man, but they literally meant men and they definitely yeah. didn't mean anybody who wasn't white. And like, yeah, absolutely. They just had no empathy towards well, I, it's not fair to say they had no empathy towards enslaved people. I think they did. Re some of the better ones did realize it was a contradiction and they were grappling yeah. with it. But none of them considered women at all. Yeah. They were just like, that's just not what we're doing here. Um, yeah. So it's like there's boundaries. Like I said, like, like empathy is like a learned behavior. It's like a cultural construct. You know, there's like some people yeah, that you're empathic for and nobody is kind towards the chicken head guy. Um, first, let me yeah. call him a chicken head. Like, you know, that's... That's hard to imagine. I guess we have a pretty, you know, nominally empathic society today, at least with the way we talk. I, you know, actually, that's it's kind of it's kind of like applicable to discussions, you know, these days about things like things like you know racism and 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 mm -hmm. social justice, where you know, real empathy can't you can't yell at someone and be like, be you know, have empathy for this group. Right. Because empathy is right. a very organic kind of natural feeling. Right. right. So I think right. there might be a lot of people who are like, I should empathize with this, these people, you know, I should empathize with someone who's going through something, but it really is, you know, the feeling of empathy is a very personal experience. Right. Um, I think so. And like you said, it is, it is learned, right. You can't be like, Hey, you guys, you should have empathy for this group of people or something like that. Um, right. You know, and, and, and that way, I guess, I guess it is very human, right? It's a very personal experience having empathy for, for someone or some, you know. And you usually have it for in-groups, right? It's usually reserved for your in-group in some way. You, you pretty much feel empathy for people outside your, I don't know if that's really, I think maybe some people aren't capable of feeling empathy yeah. for people outside their in-group. I was thinking like, you see kids, you know, sick kids from anywhere in the world, people empathize with them, you know, we empathize yes. with animals, you know, that aren't even human. Yeah. You see them have something yeah. bad. I don't know. And I don't know what's going on with the Mercerism thing. So I'm a little, I'm at a little bit of a loss. I, we, we just, we just did a, an episode on Akira and uh, it, you know, my friend was like, so what do you think happened at the end of Akira? And I was just like, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kind of, 
give me your theory. I really don't know. So did you, did you tell yeah. what, what is your theory of the last sequence with Mercerism and the, the toad? Well, I think, I think it's like he, at the beginning, right. Mercer kind of came to him almost as this like supernatural vision, right. When uh-huh. he's fighting the androids and Mercer like saves his life. Right. That, right. Cause he tells them where the, I can't remember exactly so you, what you happens. Think it's real. I think you think there's a, you think there's a real experience there of some kind. Yeah. I think, I mean, is it possibly I, implanted? I guess, Maybe. I mean, it's, I, at least, at least the, you know, the times I've read the book, I've, I've thought that it was kind of, you know, cause I don't think Philip K. Dick really deals too much in unreliable narrators or things like that. Um, okay. okay. But I, I didn't, so I saw that's why as, I was saying, as, when I was saying that Deckard seems to decide that Resh is not an Android, I sort of took it at face value. Like I was, I was like, yeah. like you said, I don't think this is an unreliable narrator narrator thing. If it is, it's a yeah. really, really sequestered, unreliable narrator. Like as in Deckard as the replicant or an android, I'm sorry, replicants yeah. from the movie. <laughs> and they went with that in the film. So it must their, their idea for that must have come from somewhere. Um, yeah. It does get mentioned. They do ask him one time, have you ever thought about you being a, a replicant? God, I keep saying yeah. an android. <laughs> um, he's like, yeah, I took the test one time a long time ago. And the guy's like, are you sure you yeah. don't have a memory implanted of, of having that? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could be. So well, and also the fact that you're, you know, throughout the book is the idea that that some androids can uh, can can pass the test. Also, because as you said, you know, how hard would it be to just program? But isn't it program certain empathetic responses? Don't don't we just kind of categorically learn that no, none of the androids can pass the test? I thought in the beginning there was a discussion about older tests, the, right? Because they're talking about like yeah, the Nexus. Yeah. There is, but, but as as far as I can tell, the Voight Camp test is still able to defeat even the Nexus Six androids, from what they're talking about in the yeah. book. At the beginning, yeah, he's talking about, oh, is this 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 latest brain is going to surpass our test, but we'll have to develop a new test. But yeah. every time he gives it, he gets the right answers. He does it to Rachel. Does he get to do it with the the guys pretending to be Russian? I can't remember whether he actually no, because the, the, the guy he pre- doesn't the right? guy pretending to be pretending to be russian i think just like pulls a gun on him attacks on him yeah right yeah 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 so i can't remember if he does it for anybody else maybe he does it in the office for resh and i guess maybe it could be left up to interpretation whether resh beat the test and is an android yeah so yeah because he doesn't but, specifically say right yeah that, but you that, know i that, think that, there are a lot of possible readings in the book there are a lot of possible readings right. that a lot of the things that happen are just you know weird weird things that that Deckard is experiencing and haven't really happened. You make a good point in that the the fake police station seems very like it's a very elaborate. kind of implausible thing for yeah. them to ha- have just for a cover for a few androids yeah. with like real humans working there too. Right cuz yeah. still Resh worked there. Um It felt it it was like it felt to me like all of a sudden for about 20 pages I was in like an Orwell novel. Like it was like, yeah. there's too, too much weirdness and like second guessing going on. And then the rest of the book isn't really like that. So I'm kind of left yeah. to think, was that the real, uh, but that's the one thing I'm learning from doing this show is that like, I think that's kind of the defining trait of classics is that we're not going to take the same thing out of them. If you and I read yeah. something and we both just read it the same way, like if we watch Zoolander, we're, we're not going to come up with multiple different interpretations of what happened in Zoolander. We're not going to have much to talk about a commentary. I think, know. I think Zoolander <laughs> was a replicant and there are clues and I'll, 
when he's doing that thing with his face yeah yeah exactly you know Uh, i don't think i've ever actually watched that movie for all i know it's a brilliant something that uh you know when when i reread brothers karamazov there was Uh an entire part that i had i totally blanked on in the first the first time i read it i completely Uh completely blanked on it i mean i don't if you haven't read it i don't want to i don't want to say what no yeah i probably will very central thing so that's actually a pretty good segue to one of the questions we always ask is what was the biggest what was the biggest surprise for you in this book i mean i know you said you read like an actual like an actual thing that an actual thing that happened or anything anything about something well for instance for instance one of the first books we did was the gulag archipelago and my biggest oh, yeah. surprise was my biggest surprise was that it's a nonfiction piece. I honestly thought yeah. it was like one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. It was just an 800 page version of that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 2400 page version of that, that I didn't, I only read the first two volumes, by the way, I gave up after two. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like this is, this yeah. is, I, I get it. I get it. The gulags are bad. I got it. I'm ready to do a show on it. Yeah. You know? So, um, but so it could be anything, anything that surprised you, you know, uh, the L Ron Hubbard thing is pretty surprising for me, you know, uh, that's, that's pretty surprising. I mean, I think it, it's tough because I, you know, like I said, I think I read this book first, you know, two decades ago or something like that. Right. But I, I think, you know, when I first read it, I was surprised at how, at how much it got to me, like emotionally, like at the end, like it is like, it is like heartbreaking when he finds that toad. Oh, and you're like, I hate that. Yeah. I, you know, it's just something about yeah. just like the brutality of that, that ending and about how really yeah. you kind of, you really identify with him a lot more than you identify with like a lot of sci-fi characters in that he's just, he's kind of in this saga of just trying to get through this. But it's this not thing, just right. And it wasn't just heartbreaking because of his experience it was yeah, also just for absolutely. me i was like i was like oh god toads are actually extinct in this world yeah i was like that's that's a really bleak you know yeah you get this moment of and, hope and then it turns it around it's like no they're totally extinct you yeah know? and philip k dick does that earlier with the owl with right? the owl right owl the, at the rosen corporation and they're like and they're like yeah there actually are owls if you know where to buy and he's like really and then he's leaving and they're like just kidding there are no owls <laughs> owls are extinct right and it's like <laughs> And that's worse because honestly, I'd rather have owls than toads if I had to choose. Mm. Gun to my head, if I that's was a, like, "What animal would I rather have in the world?" I'd dead go with owls, you know. So it'd be—I mean, I don't question, have anything against a, toads, but that's a—that's a question I didn't think would come up. I might have to think about that one for a while. Like, <laughs> what would you rather have? Let's maybe. Hey, you know what? Why don't we just do the next half hour of the podcast? I'll list animals, <laughs> and you have to choose which one you'd rather have go extinct. <laughs> it'll be it'll be your void camp test we can tell whether you're an android by, by your responses so yeah <laughs> that's the uh by the way anybody that supports us on patreon that'll be an outtake that you can get <laughs> it's just me like horse or llama llama okay great all right moa or pterodactyl you know just do that for the rest of the night Bad yeah. news. Bad news about pterodactyls, have, by the way. You could have a uh, you could have like a March Madness bracket, like which which one like <laughs> you know, wins against the uh... right. Oh man, I, I really think I really think panda is going to make it all the way through. I mean, what are you going to put up against panda that it's not going to win? Koala, panda, yeah, koala be like the the top bracket. She don't put them in the same bracket. You seed them. You seed them as number ones. And, they're both one. They're both one seed, so they're in different definitely, orders. Definitely. Right? They're in different yeah. regions. 
Yes, right. clearly. And they're in different regions of the world too, so it makes it makes. Oh, sense, maybe that's right? how you do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's going to make it hard. I mean, the koala is really going to go straight to the top of the bracket in the Australia division because there's nothing else cute. Everything else just wants to kill you. So it's really you know. Feel what like- about the uh, platypus? Platypus. I, I mean, Australia's Australia's got some good ones. Echidna. Yeah, I um, mean, wallabies, kangaroos, wallabies. You know what's actually really wombats? cute is wombats. Wombats are wombats. Wombats. Are charming. Yeah. I saw a wombat. I actually, actually walked up to a wombat that was like sleeping on the ground. I was like tempted to pet it, but then I was like, they actually have claws. I'm like, really, probably not a great idea. So I didn't yes. do it. But, um, so you don't have any surprises. Everything about this book is exactly um, where you left it the last time you read it. I was kind of surprised at how, how deep a lot of the themes are. I think a lot of the themes uh-huh. are very, you know, you like, you know, like we've discussed them. A lot of the themes you can sure. actually really get into them. It's not just like, you know, like a Terminator thing where it's like, hey, robots, you know, became uh, self-aware and then attacked humans or something like that. There are really big questions about, you know, what it means to be a human, what it means. I don't to know. Be if ter- Terminator is not the best example of the most vapid thing in sci-fi. That's OK. There's some themes. going. No, there on are there. some that's, there are some things, but I would say it's not as subtle as this book. No, it's not as subtle as this. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. Well, what I about think, you? What what surprised yeah, you about the book? I mean, it's either just the. The, the world building that's going on in the book, which is not only more elaborate than the film, but just there's, there's just, um, there's just more of it. You know, it's not the same. I mean, it's like this post-nuclear, yeah. I think it's a post-nuclear war world. No, it is because they talk about the fall. It is. Yeah. They talk. About, oh, that was one yeah. thing I wanted to talk about. And the, the people kibble. in the 50s. Is it kib- kibble? Uh, yeah. Kibble. Kibble. Yeah. Not kibble. Kibble. Oh yeah. Kibble. I think it's kibble. Kibble, kibble yeah, is the dog. Kibble food. and yeah. bits and bits and bits is a different thing than <laughs> what's laying around from uh, Mercer. Yeah. That's one thing I was thinking about is in the 50s and 60s, there are all these books where there's radioactive fallout. And it's like radioactive fallout. The the reality of nuclear war is radioactive fallout is bad. It's a bad thing. It's not good. You don't want radioactive fallout. But it does not blanket the entire world and last forever and kill all life on Earth. It's just not like that, you know. And there's so many books like that, like On the Beach and... um, uh, the last ship. There's all these books that are sort of based on that idea, and they're. But do, you, um, but do you think? Do you think Philip K. Dick meant that literally? Like that's what would I don't happen, know. or is it more just like, you know, yeah. from from what I hear from like my mom, you know, during the Cold War, this you know this paranoia was just everywhere. It was ubiquitous, right? You did bomb drills in school. Sure. Everyone had bomb shelters, things like that, and so in a way, even though the physical fallout doesn't cover the earth you know there is this idea that this this fear of nuclear war pervades everything right it's oh, just it's, absolutely it's, everywhere it's not about and so it's not about our parents i grew up with that up until i up yeah. until i was what we were like 13 or 14 when the cold war ended i i had nightmares yeah. about it all the time and stuff i mean it was definitely something that scared me the reality of nuclear war was bad enough and it was something i was yeah. terrified of and I think this idea of like, you know, world blanketing, like civilization ending fallout was kind of a response to the people who weren't taking it seriously enough. You know, there were always yeah. these people like these Curtis LeMay types that were like advocating just bombing the Russians. And it was, yeah. you know, that's pretty scary when you think about it. somebody. So it's almost like you have to, it's like a negotiating position where you have to take like an extreme viewpoint to counter the extreme just, viewpoint, just to, yeah. you know, just to, just so that we get in the middle. At some, you know, so that's part of it, but. Yeah, I, and and other than the world building stuff, my biggest surprise was that I, the term Blade Runner is so ad hoc, 
just it's yeah. have nothing to do with the source material and doesn't really work in the movie either. It's literally just a cool word that was appended to this film. Like, yeah. Not, not long before the film was released. They hardly even explain why they're using the word or why the movie, movie is called that. I think it's just synonymous with Bounty Hunter in the movie. I, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, in the, in the so, movie. Maybe. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's just out of nowhere. So I was, I was surprised. I kept waiting for that to get explained somewhere in the book like where that came from. I had to read the Wikipedia entry afterwards. And it was just like, they just took some guy's script based on another book that mentioned that word, bought the rights to that script and just took the word to put into the movie. I was like, (laughs) why? (laughs) What was the motivation there? It's kind of cool sounding, I guess, but I mean, definitely, definitely cannot call a movie. Do androids dream of electric sheep. That is a terrible title. It's it's not a great. It's actually kind of, it's kind of a, I think it's an okay title for a book, right? Because it's okay, it's- but it's it's a little wordy even for a book title. Yeah, so the last thing to do on the show is uh, we decide whether we're toasting this classic. Um, okay, let me get a, a little more Shibley. Oh, okay. You mean the uh, the Chablis? What, that's, I, I literally, the people couldn't figure out what I was talking about until it, they were like, oh, I pronounce it Chablis. I was like, wow, really? I mean, you work at it anyway. Have you ever seen the meme of Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec? And he's at Home Depot and he's like, I know more than you do. Like, that's how I'm starting to feel at the liquor store, which is kind of scary. I'm like, I'm like, do you have Chablis and where can I find it? And, I'm, and then immediately I'm like, I can tell from your face. The answer is no. <laughs> you have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm just yeah. going to go wander around. Um, well, in uh, I don't know if you remember this, but in Virginia, the alcoholic beverage control stores, the ABC stores. Sure. Um, uh, so those are like highly prized government jobs because, you know, they have like government pensions, government health care, things like that. And so a lot of times the people that work at the ABC stores actually don't drink, which leads <laughs> to some awkward recommendations. So one time I was at an ABC store and I was getting That's scotch funny. for a friend. I was getting scotch for a friend um, to like celebrate something. And I don't really uh, maybe I know a touch more now, but at the time I knew nothing about scotch. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, so which which of these scotches would you recommend if someone likes, you know, the the kind of smoky scotch? And the guy's like, all of them on the top shelf are great. I'm like, you don't you don't know anything. Do you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's what I mean. He just basically pointed to the 30 most expensive ones. He's like, all right. these are great. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, it's like you ask a question and you're just like, I, I can tell already that I've wasted my time asking yeah. this question. Goodbye. Can I just remove <laughs> myself from this conversation? Like, this is not going to be helpful. So the way it works like, which, is... Which Chablis, which Chablis is the oakiest for, you know what, I'm just going to stop myself right now. I'll just, <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go and do exactly. it. Exactly. And I ended up with uh, Carlo Rossi, uh, Chablis. And, <clears throat> and the guy was like, oh, I don't know why this is shelved over here. This is an Italian. And I was like, it's not Italian. That's an American wine. And the guy was like, no, it's not. And I'm like, California table wine. <laughs> like, and it's a gigantic <laughs> bottle. It's like a, like a, like a tome. <clears throat> a tome. That's a ton. Remember I was telling you about that word that means a lot of wine? A ton. T-U-N. Oh, I didn't it's know. Like a, oh, like a like a barrel. It's like yeah, a it's like something like thing. fifty barrels or some 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 large measure of wine is called a ton. And every time I saw that word, I pronounce it like that. How much wine are you drinking tonight? Oh, we drank a ton of wine. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, so I got the Carlo Rossi. Um, I just barely put a dent in it tonight, and I can't imagine I'm gonna drink it again because it's not something I love. What did you think about the Chablis? I actually really liked mine. I left the bottle in okay. the other room, but, but you got like mine, a real mine bottle. Was, you got I got French, an actual right? French, actual French bottle from 
whatever we, I think it's from the Bordeaux region. I'm not, I sure. think it's Burgundy uh, usually. Oh, Burgundy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I got one when it says Boujon, does that mean Burgundy? Does that mean it's from Burgundy? Yeah, I don't really know. I, I was, I that was my theory. So I, I did actually buy a different bottle of French wine that was labeled that way, but didn't say it was mm. any other particular grape. So maybe it was right. I don't know. Anyway, I'm drinking the Carlo Rossi. So, you know, so, so what we do with the ending here is um, what we do at the end is that the rule is the person that chose the classic, the other, the other person is the deciding vote about whether we toast the classic. So okay. if you so choose I've essentially already chosen by, by choosing, I've, pretty much, pretty right. much. Well, although, although sometimes like I've, I've chosen things that I didn't end up liking as much as I thought I might. Like, I, I, I don't always choose things that I've read before for my, for my thing. It's not, it's not necessarily that, but. Um, and actually I should mention some, sometimes, you know, you go back to something a couple of years later and it's really not as good as you remember. So it's yeah. definitely actually, yeah. it's actually possible to choose something and be like, I Absolutely. recommend this. And then. After you and do it, you're like, like it. I yeah. actually don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I've made mistakes with that. I've recommended books to people before that they didn't age very well for me. Like I read them again after having recommended them. And I'm like, Ooh, I was kind of a dumb person 10 years ago. This is not a very good book, you know, or one yeah. time I got halfway through a book and I recommended it to a friend because I was really enjoying it. And then I got to the second half of the book and I was like, Oh, Oh man. Like I, <laughs> I, I'm like embarrassed that the person is reading this terrible ending to this book, like it's associating with me. So um, I don't know, but um, yeah. So anyway, you can lobby if you want, but essentially I get to pick whether, whether we're toasting this classic. So okay. um, what do you, what do you, what's your, what's your feeling? I mean, are, are you I, I toasting? Think, it? I think it, I think it deserves to be, I think it deserves to be toasted. Uh, I think, you know, like I said, it raises some interesting questions there are things that are definitely kind of unique to it, right? You're not going to be like, you're not going to be like, what was that book where they were grabbing the handles of the box and empathizing yeah, no, with that's a person true. Yeah. walking yeah. over a mountain? Was that was that Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants? <laughs> no, no, wait, wait, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I don't think so. Um, yeah, it was Yiddish, Yiddish no. Policeman's Union. Oh, yeah, 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 YPU. Um, right. And uh, I think it has enough creativity to make it, pretty memorable and it's i think it's also a fun read i mean that's something we didn't really discuss but you know it's a book you we also really kind of forgot we also kind of forgot to give a synopsis that would have been smart sometimes i just dive right into these <laughs> discussions and i forget to, so if anybody's listening to it hoping to find out what the book was about they're getting a really weird hodgepodge idea of what this book was about so you know yeah yeah so you know i i'm down i think i'm toasting it i'm good with it okay. i thought it was uh like i said it was plenty to talk about um you're not gonna get the same take on it you're probably seeing that's another thing about classics is like one one time we did catcher in the rye and it's like i've read catcher in the rye like three different times in my life and each time the book's a little different because i'm different. Oh, absolutely. so it's like not only do different people read it but like you're probably experiencing this book differently than you did when you were what 23 or whatever we were when we graduated college yeah, 100 percent. Right? so um, i think that's a hallmark of a classic um i'm down I, I, i'm i'm toasting it so bottoms up okay cheers all right i'll, cheers. I'll, I'll clink i'll clink something oh yeah oh that was kind of wooden. Um, yeah that was a little bit better see. i've got there we go oh you're delayed 
I saw you clink and then it was like a second later where I heard it. I actually was looking, I was like, wow, how did that not make a noise? And then, <laughs> then all of a sudden it, it hit me. Yeah. So we're toasting it. Um, and that's, that's usually how we wrap up the wrap up the show. So um, do you have anything else to right. add? Are you, are we ready to, ready to call it? Um, I, I don't think so. I think we, we covered a lot of stuff. Um, Definitely. But, uh, probably more I references think- to 70s bad movies than we needed in, in talking about this, you know, but. There was an extensive Battlefield Earth discussion. Um, I like the witch. The witch animals should die. Bracket is actually pretty cool. I like yeah, the that. March. That's, the March fun. Madness. Uh, the, bracket. The March to Extinction that a, Madness. That can be a Patreon thing. You can get a downloadable bracket mm-hmm. and and fill it out. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Champion non-extinct yes. animal. I would I say actually, I, I I really like uh, you know I'm I'm surprised we didn't bring it up earlier, but I think that is a very good feature of a classic is that it in a way sometimes reflects almost more on you than on itself right sure you read it and you see you see it differently based on how you're approaching it whereas there's probably a whole bunch of a lot of depth yeah there's probably a whole bunch of like smart derrida things i could say about that about like the 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 text and the signifier and whatnot you know i'm not going to get into it but yeah essentially like you're bringing so much to it that it isn't really about the the text itself. Um, it's not Derrida. Who's the guy I'm thinking of? Um, think about the Grand Canyon, whether or not you've ever seen the Grand Canyon before you actually see the, you don't actually see the, the real, anyway, whatever. The, sig- the but, signifier stuff is Derrida, si- isn't it? Yeah, it's either Derrida or Saussure or somebody like that. Anyway, one of those guys, one of those guys that I didn't get into because I'm not as officially academic as you are. I'm sure you've come across, although you're Maybe in the- smo- Smokey. Is it, yeah, it Smokey right. or the Bandit? Is it one of I, those? No, it was the those? Bandit. It was the Bandit, <laughs> <laughs> which I can't say without doing the Einstein voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, so I think we're I think we're good. we're toasting the classics. I think is is done for the night. We're out. Peace Thanks, out, Dave. That's it for the thirteenth episode of Toasting the Classics. Damn, to be a Triskaidekaphobia. I think it went great. For those playing along at home, get some rum, lime juice, curacao, and orja syrup and make some Mai Tais for next week's episode where we'll be talking about Mark Twain's letters from Hawaii. Yeah, I had to look up the pronunciation of orja syrup. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, your comments and complaints, votes on whether Jay is a replicant, whatever. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. Thank you.